It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. There are two things I've been thinking a lot about over the past six months to a year. One of them a little bit longer than the other, but the first is neurodivergence. I was not very familiar with this term until semi-recently. And then as I've spoken about in some previous episodes, I've been on a journey to look into my own neurodivergence and recognizing the characteristics of ADHD as well as autism. And that's been fascinating, at times a little vulnerable, um, feeling a bit unsure about it all, but other times feeling like I understand myself better. And I actually just saw my sister for the first time since I really dug into all of this. And she also identifies as having ADHD. Neither one of us have been fully evaluated, but through understanding how it manifests and doing some research as well as some self-tests, it seems clear that as well as other family members of ours, since it tends to be genetic, likely have ADHD, if not other forms of neurodivergence. And that was one thing that made me very interested to speak with the guest today, Sarah. And Sarah, another thing that really compelled me about your passions is advocating for differences, navigating differences within one another, and not just mentally, but also physically, and how things like our skin color and our heritage can contribute to us feeling perhaps like outcasts, perhaps treated differently and oppressed even. And I love, Sarah, that you are passionate about advocating for others. You and I are both white women and using our position and our privileges to support people who are marginalized. And I just love that you're doing that work, Sarah, and I'm really looking forward to discussing that with you today to hear what inspired you to start this type of work. And maybe that's a great way to begin here is going back to your history. You brought up as a young child, things like chronic illness. Is that something that started in your childhood or is this something that developed as your life went on? And did you realize, or what age I should ask, did you realize you had ADHD? Thanks, Whitney. Yeah, you've touched on so many interesting areas there that I'd love to dive into a bit more. So I developed a chronic illness, rheumatoid arthritis, in the last about four and a half years. And I discovered I had ADHD, or I started to learn about it in the last two to three years, perhaps. I think as a child, I had a lot of experiences in different cultures. So we traveled and moved around in different countries. And that could be in my family, there's a tendency to want to seek out new experiences and a lot of extra stimulation. So, you know, that's part of the background of maybe why that type of culture that I was born into. But the emergence of the concept of ADHD really helped me understand myself in the world and made so much sense of my experiences as a child and adolescent and as an adult. And I think possibly is a contributing factor to developing a chronic illness, which is a complicated thing. But I think part of the ADHD, like typical burnout cycles, can create chronic stress. And that can be layered with traumas and other kinds of things, genetic predisposition to trigger autoimmune disease such as that I'm now living with. But I think it was my early childhood experiences of being, quotes, different that created my passion for inclusion, equity, and understanding what difference means. Even though I didn't name it, didn't know it, it was always felt that I was being brought up as someone very privilege, someone very centered in the culture that surrounds us. And I still had this strong sense of difference. I think there are other reasons as well, but we could go into that um, a bit more. Wow. I felt emotion come up in me as you were sharing that, Sarah, because I've been so passionate about inclusion 
for as long as I can remember as well. And I don't even know if I recognize feeling different. I guess maybe I did, but I think as kids, if you don't have anyone else identifying it, pointed it out to you, for me at least, I was internalizing it and taking it on as a bit of a burden and spending so much of my life trying to change, trying to fit in. And now looking back, I think, oh, well, perhaps all this desire to change and fit in was because I felt different and I didn't want to. I felt like there was something wrong about being different. And I think also from my research on neurodivergence, there is one of the strengths that neurodivergent people have is that they tend to notice a lot of details, especially in other people. I'm not sure if this manifests that way for you, Sarah, but I felt very in touch with nature and also very tuned into how other people were feeling and I would pick up on things. I mean, I notice I have so much sensitivity that I seem to notice everything. And I remember so much of my life pointing out things that I noticed and other people would think it was weird that I noticed, right? Like classic science too of neurodivergence can be like being really sensitive to sound and light and textures and things like that. And I picked up on all of that stuff and I just assumed other people as would as well. And then when I would point out when things were bothering me, a lot of people would say, oh, you're too sensitive. Don't let it bother you. And it really wasn't until the past maybe year or two that I started to realize, wait a second, like, I don't know if I can change this about myself. And that sensitivity, though, to tie it back to some of the things that you were saying, Sarah, I think helped me notice when it seemed like other people were uncomfortable or other people weren't being treated well and that desire to make sure that everybody felt as happy as possible, as included as possible. Were those some of the things that you felt too as a child or throughout your life? I do recognize a lot of what you're saying and particularly sensitivity and connection to nature and that awareness of what's going on under the surface. For me, that's how I experience it is that I'm kind of aware of these unconscious things as if they're quite alive and present in a way that I think a lot of people don't. And I've sort of figured out, like, I guess they don't see that. And they get quite upset if you point out things that they don't want to be aware of. (laughs) There's a lot of hidden agendas and things like that, that I can sort of see happening. And that can give me a lot of, it's a kind of gift in that I bring it to my art practice and coaching practice to be able to see the unconscious or the sort of subliminal things that are happening. But it can also upset people. And especially when you're young, you may not really know why or understand that those things are things that people want to hide. So that's one aspect. I think also sensitivity to nature. And I was very much raised by my mother, who's Irish. And I've learned a bit about how she got this from her father, a real deep love and connection for nature, but also a kind of anxiety about the harm that humans do to it, very much caught up together. And I, in fact, studied biology and I found that amazing experience because it's so divert. The diversity is off the charts. The creatures that actually exist are so far beyond what anything anyone has imagined as an alien, you know. And um, it led me to actually from the age of about four, I wanted to live in the rainforest. And eventually this path led me to that becoming a reality. And I lived in the Ecuadorian Amazon for a time. And I also worked in cloud forests and dry forests. And nowadays, I think of being neurodivergent as something that's really highly adapted to that kind of very, very ecologically diverse environment. Because the people who pick up on the most subtle cues and are the most sensitive to the textures and the sounds are the ones who are going to detect threats in the environment sooner than other people. I remember, so we were staying in a place where you have to take an aeroplane, a light aircraft, like pay for a light aircraft to take you into the forest. And then you book it to pick you up, but they have to wait for a day where there's clear weather and there's no rainstorms between you and the airfield and where they're coming from. So we had to just wait without knowing. This was pre-internet, pre-mobile phone. (laughs) Well, I think we had early stage mobile phones, but Rainforest did not have mobile phone coverage. And so we just had to wait for a few days for this plane to show up with our bags packed, knowing that it could land at any moment. And it was like day three or day four or something. And some small children came running and said, we can hear the aeroplane. And I was like, listening, really? I can't hear it. 
it was 40 minutes before we could hear it. It took 40 minutes more before we could hear the plane that the children could hear. Then after we could hear it, it still took a while before it actually arrived. So if I feel I'm sensitive, like, whoa, (laughs) there's whole new levels. And I think that is to do with living in really ecologically rich environments where there isn't a lot of noise, artificial light, and all these kinds of things that we've come to create around ourselves and somehow try to adapt to maybe people who are less sensitive to these kinds of things find that a lot easier. And actually, some people seem to seek out this really intense stimulation, which, yeah, I guess I relate to what you say, you know, that I would tend to find things like fireworks difficult and noisy, crowded situations. Those are not places I like to be. In a forest, I can hear all the subtle things, and that's where I really come to life and really love being in that kind of place. Wow, yes. And it's also such a great point, too, about how I think it seems like human beings crave more and more stimulation. And a lot of that stimulation has been revolved around technology, right? I've always been really into technology, very intrigued by it. I understand it. I feel excited about it. But I also simultaneously, to your point, Sarah, thrive in nature and seek it out. In fact, I just came back from a trip a few days ago visiting some national parks. And I feel like a different person when I'm there versus when I'm sitting here at home in the city in front of a computer, which it almost feels like a split side of me, right? And that it's fascinating. And I feel like a lot of people don't get that balance until they seek it out. Or maybe it's even a privilege. I mean, travel itself is something I have always had the privilege of. My parents like to travel. We had the money to travel. And so we would go on family trips. And I was encouraged to do that. And one thing I've really been trying not to express or assume when I'm talking to other people is that they have the privilege or even the encouragement to travel. Somebody say like, if you want to, you will. And oh, if you want to travel, just go do it. Just save up money. It's all these like just things. And I wonder how much of my interest and ease when it comes to travel is A, being privileged both financially and racially, but also that I'm drawn to it where maybe some people are not drawn to travel not drawn to go seek out nature or a different situation, and also don't have the privilege of time, flexibility, of financial resources, as well as maybe even a comfort, something that I was completely ignorant to until about two years ago when I realized how scary it is for people, especially of color, to travel because they feel really vulnerable. And I'm curious how this has come up, or if this has come up for you, Sarah, not in your personal experiences, but in your awareness of others. Yeah, absolutely. And I live in a small town in the countryside in England. And I think there's something about policing the landscape. It could be even just a person of colour wishing to travel from London to the countryside or to live in the countryside. It's a dream for a lot of people, but it's seen as a very white dream. (laughs) Like You don't often see a black farmer on the ads for bread or whatever. So there is a sense of like the countryside is very policed and there's a sort of myth built up around how beautiful it is and that it somehow belongs to the elite, the gentry, the aristocracy and the wealthy people. And that is not just a myth, but very much enforced in practice. And I see that in this town. Um, I did grow up traveling a great deal and not thinking a great deal of it, because as a child, you just accept whatever you're in as normal. And then as you get older, you realize that's not necessarily normal at all in all kinds of different ways. So yeah, I've been reflecting a lot on that and the privilege of travel, the idea that flying in particular is really damaging to the environment that I say that I love so much. What does it mean to love nature, you know, and who gets to love it and who is not supposed to? The idea that blackness is somehow associated with urban settings There are black folks here in our town and they find it hard sometimes. And there's one woman in particular who's campaigning around running, cross-country running, which she was really good at. And it's a real issue, like access just to go to walk in the countryside in, in the commons or in the nature reserves. It's very subtle sometimes, but it's all sorts of layers of cultural signaling. 
plus the privilege aspect. So, you know, I was raised in a very financially privileged family and I'm now in very different circumstances. So I've also started to sort of understand that idea that traveling has a great cost, not just in money, but you have to be able to afford the time to go away, the risk that you get ill, the privilege of your skin color being safe to travel in different places. Obviously, traveling alone as a woman, which I did do sometimes, felt unsafe at times. And I had a kind of, yeah, I guess a very entitled mentality, which was, <laughs> I'm just going to go where I want. And I guess gradually over the years, like coming into more awareness around that and unpacking that further. And I mean, I think I always sought to travel with respect and I always wanted to work where I went to rather than be a tourist. But it wasn't very deeply thought through. And certainly I wasn't in a culture that would encourage that thinking, that kind of thinking. It was it's always been a very much like achieve your dreams, take what you want, get from the world, whatever you like. And I'm coming to sort of see things a bit differently and say, well, who else is going to be involved in this experience? And how is it going to be for them? Do they want to be part of it? And I think also, just to add a little bit more, growing up, so we lived in Cyprus, we lived in the Middle East. We often had people serving us, maybe living in the house at times, um, keeping the house clean, cooking, things like that. And I think that's very complicated, difficult to navigate, a problematic. But I think as a child, that creates both the sense of entitlement, but it also for me was an awareness of people, particularly when they might be living in our house. And seeing that difference and then wondering, what is that about? And that comes back to possibly, I have read here and there that ADHD people often have not exactly higher empathy, but there's something about not being quite so attached to the idea of status and possibly with autism as well, that you just see things a bit differently and don't take for granted those positions quite as much, perhaps. I don't want to be too generalized about that, but I do see that as a bit of a pattern. So yeah. That's a lot of different traveling experiences. And um, I guess I've evolved from wanting to travel a lot to a point of where I actually want to learn what it means to be rooted in a place and to question that idea of traveling without saying that it's also really enriching and very good for helping people understand difference because it allows us to experience difference in a very immersive way, in a way that it makes it impossible for us to impose ourselves on the environment sometimes if we're completely immersed in a different culture that can really throw up questions about our own culture in a really positive way. Absolutely. It's interesting because some things that I've tried to become more aware of when I travel is what the cultures are like in different places. And I live in Los Angeles where it feels pretty diverse, depends on the part of town you're in because it can also feel extremely privileged here and extremely white. But the benefit I see of a big city like this is that you can drive around and feel different cultures within different parts of town if you are aware of it and seeking it out. But again, that's coming from a white perspective. So I'm not fully sure what it's like for someone who isn't white to live in a city like this, because there's certainly a big issue with homelessness, for example. And even that creates a big divide amongst wealth inequality and something I would like to learn more about because I don't want to get caught up in seeing people as different just because they are in a different living situation than me, just because they have different financial structure. And how can we not try to divide ourselves, right? And this is something I try to notice when I'm traveling. And on this last trip, a big thing came up that I've really not spent enough time understanding, which is indigenous people. I was in Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and traveling through a lot of reservations. And I felt a few emotions, one thinking how ignorant I was. And I tried to listen to some audio guides, actually. There is one that's really nice I came across called Hear, Hear. And when you're traveling by car, you can listen to little stories about what the areas you're in were like and how they were developed. And so many of the areas I was passing through have a history in indigenous people, of course, that part of the country, or if not a huge part of the United States. And I just thought, wow, like I grew up in Massachusetts which also has a huge cultural significance for this country. But so much of what I was taught was by other white people. <laughs> I grew up in a privileged town and I wondered how much of what I was taught was just through the lens of other white people. 
how can I go seek out the history of this country from a different perspective, right? Like, where was the bias in my education is something I'm starting to wonder. But the other thing that came up as I was traveling was that there have been points recently where I've been in areas and I'm actually in the minority because I'm one of the few white people there and I stand out as a tourist, right? When they see me, they know I'm not from there, whether it's from the car that I drive to the skin color to how I interact with them. And I find that incredibly humbling. And to me, that inspires me to travel and at least get to know this country by car just to pass through areas where there might not even be airports for a distance, right? You really could only experience them if you're driving. And then also notice what it feels like to be an outsider. I think that's incredibly enlightening too, because I already, as you mentioned, Sarah, feel that vulnerability as a woman when I travel by myself, which is another interesting thing to reflect on. It's just the insecurity that comes up when you feel like you're, I don't know, weaker. It's kind of odd, right? Like the gender differences we have and what that means and how we've internalized things. And I often wonder, is that true? Is it true that I'm weaker? Is it true that I'm vulnerable? Or is it just something that's been implanted in my mind? And just starting from there as a woman is fascinating because I imagine that this applies to people who are not white is like, are these just ideas that we've created about one another and being different? Just these things that you cannot help about yourself make you weaker, make you vulnerable, make you a target. Just a few days ago, as of the time that we're recording this in mid-May 2022, there was horrific story. I'm not sure if that reached you in England, Sarah, but in Buffalo, New York, a white man, a young white man, drove up to a grocery store and shot at many people of color and seemed to have been specifically targeting them. And not only did he do that, but he chose to record it live on video, which added another level of horror to the situation because he wanted to broadcast his hate crime. He wanted to broadcast his racism. And there are people watching this unfold live. And it just felt so disturbing that you could see this footage and some people were almost with him in this act And he wrote a, I think they called it a manifesto of why he was doing this. And from what I recall of his words, they were all just rooted in deep hate and deep difference. And the fact that somebody is just going to the grocery store and unsafe really chilled me to the core. That they, maybe even if they felt confident in who they are, even if they felt safe and secure in the area that they're at, There are other people that don't believe them to be equal. So they feel that they have the privilege and the right to eliminate these people. And it just felt so unsettling and sad. And when I went to the grocery store a day or two later, I felt I wondered about my own vulnerability. But then I thought, wow, is there like, what does that say about me that I felt vulnerable? Do I even have the privilege of feeling vulnerable in a situation? Or am I so privileged that like the sense of vulnerability I felt could not even compare to somebody of a different race? Like that inkling that I feel of feeling unsafe somewhere cannot even measure up to what some people feel on a daily basis. And how when incidents like that happen, they create even more fear and insecurity for others. And it just makes me so sad because it reinforces these made up ideas that we have about inequality. Well, firstly, I I hadn't heard that news. I'm not a massive news junkie. And I'm just very sorry to hear that. It's really sad, really horrible thing to happen. I think when those kinds of attacks happen, we do all feel vulnerable. If we have any level of empathy, we relate as human beings to being attacked. (laughs) It's horrific. We know it's horrific because we can empathize. And we all have the possibility of killing other people if we want to. We all have that power, but very few people choose to exercise it. And there's always a question for me. I do really struggle with this idea. Like, why do some people, and it seems to usually be men, male-bodied persons, who feel that expressing their violence externally is possible? I think there's something about 
the way I see the world that I could hardly imagine that as a po- it's not really a possibility. I think I suppose personality comes into it, but there's also a cultural phenomenon. You know, I believe we live in a very violent culture and some people in this culture will pick up that violence is basically okay. They're allowed they have access to that if they want to use it. And it also brings me in mind of uh, Resma Menakem's work and others who write about ancestral trauma and how it gets passed down. And I've been doing over the pandemic years, two years, I was part of a women's circle in the UK, which is looking at, and actually we have one woman in the United States, part of it as well. And we were looking at the times in Europe of the persecution of people as witches for witchcraft. And that's led me to look at our European history and see how unbelievably violent and traumatic it was. And the way it's framed by Resma and others is that trauma then got brought to the United States and kind of dumped on the people they found there and also got caught up with the enslavement of people in, from the coasts of Africa. And yeah, just this really difficult question of what is it in humans that does this <laughs> and how do humans come through that. And again, coming back to biology, we can look at it as human is a very, very complex system. And if violence is enacted upon it, it will cause unpredictable consequences. And I think there's something of this idea of the unpredictability of this bursting of violent acts out of the society, out of the group. But the culture creates the possibility for those explosions to happen, if that makes sense. So we can't predict always exactly which person will do what and when, but we know that we're in a culture that feeds this violent and othering dimension. Basically, that's a guy with issues who doesn't know how to handle it and thinks that it's acceptable for him to dump his crap on other people <laughs> in a really horrific way. And all it does is spread more of that. Now we have more of that to deal with. Not We're not healing from that. We're, it's just adding to the problems. And it happens. I mean, there's been a rape in a cemetery near my house. And it's a place that people, it's a very, very beautiful old cemetery with incredible views. Lots of people go there with their children or just on their own to be in solitude and enjoy it. It's got um, rare wildlife growing there and things like that. And then about a week ago, there was this violent sexual assault and it's really troubled the community. And it's the same question, like, where does this come from? And people are saying, well, we should install more lighting, more street lighting. And I was like, street lighting isn't going to stop this violence. It might discourage it from a, that particular spot, but it will just move to another spot. Like the violence is still there, it's still coming through. And so we can all feel vulnerable to that. I spoke with my husband. He said, you know, as a young man, he was scared of violence and being attacked by other men in this area. So we're all frightened of it, but to different levels. And we experience the attacks at different levels, depending on how we show up in the world, almost as symbols to each other. So being female doesn't mean you're weaker, but it means you symbolize something that can then become somebody else's symbol of where they want to direct their anger and frustration, their misery and their pain. And it, similarly, you know, skin color can become a sort of symbol of availability to abuse. <laughs> That's how I'm thinking about it at the moment, this ongoing question that I've grappled with throughout my life, really. I'm not sure if your brain goes there, but there's part of it for me that wants to understand it at the base, which sounds like you do as well. Like, why does this happen? I'm a big why person, <laughs> which I've learned is also a characteristic of neurodivergence and something that's always made me feel different. I've actually felt fascinated about why other people aren't why people. <laughs> it's like, he was curious as I am, like about why things happen and why things are and my interest in psychology is, seems to have come out of that. But there's that first root of why. And I get very frustrated when somebody says, well, there's no way to know why. <laughs> I feel like there must be. There must be an explanation for why people behave this way. And your point about the ancestral trauma, I think, is so ancestral. Not ancestral, right? Is it ancestral? <laughs> pronunciation is also not my strong suit, but understanding the roots of how the ripple effects really. And to your point too, Sarah, about how first I feel the ripple effect of sadness, right? Both you sharing the story of what's happened in your area and me sharing the experience of what happened in this country recently. 
it just brings up so much sadness and this that in itself is such a disappointing experience because it feels like there's so much sadness in this world that has been a bit heightened recently. I don't know if statistically if we're any more sad than we usually are, but it feels like we are. It feels like we're in a sad time and maybe that sadness is what provokes this, right? It's, these instances cause sadness and then it's like this whole domino effect. People are sad. They feel hopeless. They feel out of control. Is that why they go and do things like this? Are they trying to feel a sense of control? And then there also seems to be this ongoing human desire to feel safe, which I feel like is one of our core drives of being alive, is how can we protect ourselves? And the threat of people being different from us is so big for some people. I don't know if I feel that. I notice it when other people seem different than me, but I also feel myself leaning into it and getting excited to meet different people. I'm drawn to difference. I want to understand others. That curiosity, I suppose, draws me closer to them versus wanting to reject them. And it's so fascinating. It also makes me wonder how threatened white men might feel. Like it's what this trauma of wanting to dominate, as you brought up too, Sarah, it feels like so much of our history around the world. And hopefully that's not an ignorant statement because I imagine way back in time, white people might have been in the minority. You'll have to tell me if that's correct, Sarah, or if you know that from historically speaking. But at least in Europe, my understanding is a lot of the rulers, a lot of the wars, a lot of those things seem to have been white men in charge of it. And so does that get passed on? And do we live in this time where white men feel threatened? Because now suddenly it seems like countries like the U.S. are really pushing for diversity, And do white men feel threatened by that? Are they threatened that they're not going to be as powerful because people of color and people of different genders or even people that don't identify as a gender, like all of that is blooming right now. And does that impact people that have felt like they're losing their sense of control and thus losing their sense of safety? And maybe the only way to regain that sense of control is to harm emotionally and or physically people that are different than that. Yeah, I mean, like you, I do always want to understand. And from a young age was like, I want my life to be about understanding everything about humans. And uh, (laughs) this kind of huge systems thinking that goes on with this kind of brain. So yeah, I mean, it's complicated, of course. So the idea of difference being based on skin color. Okay, so this is interesting. It's completely made up. The color of this white skin, the pale skin, is a sort of genetic aberration of human being basically dark brown and then moving out of Africa, a very small number of people moving north through a little land bridge into the Middle East and then across into Asia and and Europe. And it just happened that moving north, melanin wasn't quite so needed. So if you had pale skin, you wouldn't die young of skin cancer quite as much. (laughs) (laughs) evolution only cares about reproduction and nothing else. It doesn't have any morality or anything like that. So it's just chance, really. Um, So it's just a genetic change. There's something popped up. Empires have happened in all sorts of places, and sometimes they're quite violent, and other times they're not quite as violent. But I think violence is just inherent in life, really. I think the question for me is, what kind of cultures do we have? Can we create where we so-called manage the violence, like how do we handle the violence? Who gets to be violent and how do you do that? And I've learned a lot from, well, first, just to finish that point about white skin and is that really different? I'll give an example being in Ecuador. I stood out as a foreigner, very tall and pale, clearly not Ecuadorian. (laughs) And I found myself very similar to my fellow Ecuadorian biologists in terms of understanding of the world, educational level, access to resources, maybe a little bit different, but essentially, you know, those people in universities in Ecuador and me were much more similar than maybe they were to the people living in the rainforest in their own country. But the skin color could be very similar, but really it's the class that makes the difference. So whiteness as a way of bonding people tribally was invented, was constructed in order to prevent a slave uprising. This is my understanding. So 
they were taking white slaves, black slaves, just people, poor people, grabbing them, anyone they can grab. They would choose them, put them on a ship, take them to America, put them to work. And then a few people were getting very, very wealthy from this. And then everybody else was being forced into servitude. And gradually people started rising up against it. And there were rebellions and protests and resistance to this system. And so they started privileging the white slaves and people in servitude in order to create a false allegiance with the wealthy based on skin color. Like, because your skin is the same color as me, you're just like me. And we have that system very deeply rooted in Britain, whereby we have a queen, right? So the idea of the queen and the royal family is that we can all identify with this rich family and think how brilliant I am because of the queen. So if I'm identified with this queen and the empire, then I get a big like confidence boost. You know, wow, I'm so great because I'm part of this thing that's really powerful and magnificent and has loads of gold carriages or whatever. And then I'll just put up with a lot of rubbish, like living in a tiny house, working my whole life to the knuckles, having loads of babies, not really being looked after to do that, whatever. But it's okay because I'm part of this thing and I get to somehow project my identity into this family that's super wealthy and they parade their wealth without sharing it. It's all designed to oppress the people. So so what you get is people who are white, who are really oppressed, angry and upset, not necessarily getting good access to education, feel tribally aligned with wealthy white people, even though they're actually being oppressed by them. And they can't see that reality and they don't know where their frustration, upset and trauma is coming from. And then it's easy to pick someone in a social position, a weaker social position, because they know those wealthy people will protect them on the basis that they're white and they will be allowed or gender as well, that men are allowed, like men can have do much more violent things with fewer consequences than women can. You know, there's these structures, there's these sort of patterns put in place. And all of it, I think, is designed so that those wealthy positions are maintained. That's all it boils down to. It's like, we don't want to share our wealth. So let's create these weird situations where people are horrible to each other. But so long as they think that we care about them, we can get away with it. (laughs) That's the system that I see in place, feeding this kind of thing. And yes, people are trying to address it. People are pushing back this whole thing of that gender is so fluid, absolutely true from a biological perspective. Gender is like open for grabs. Evolution, nature is not categorized itself into binaries at all. It's constantly experimenting with thousands of different possibilities. And so when people are raising that, it's disruptive because it forces us to rethink our cultural structures. And we may have come up to rely on them because if my life is not very good, but at least, at least I get to celebrate the queen once every couple of years or whatever. And we have a party, we're going to have a jubilee, you know, woohoo, hey, <laughs> queen's been around for a long time. We can all be proud of ourselves, even though things haven't been that great. And it's a way of culturally maintaining the queen system. So that's kind of where I'm at with how I see this patterns. They're kept in place because it suits the powers to keep it that way. And it may not even be conscious. Like if you're born into the royal family, you probably basically believe that you are entitled and it's fine. It's completely natural that it should be like that. You wouldn't necessarily question it. It's deeply fascinating. And as an American, I feel fairly ignorant about how all that works, but I've been drawn to Meghan and Harry and saw that Oprah interview and found it just, I felt myself feeling excited about their decision. I don't know how that impacts someone who lives in England and experiences that because given her skin color, but also this desire that was perhaps embedded from Diana and what I know about her and almost this rebelliousness and going against the grain and doing things differently. And that feels like, oh, there's an inkling of hope that things could change, right? And then they come to California. And in a way, though, they're still part of that system because in the US, we don't have that relationship with our leaders quite so much. It feels like we have a president who some people respect and where half the country dislikes and you know, there's all the feelings about the government. But we have this really intense relationship with celebrity. And I, I don't know if it's quite as strong in England as it is here. But one thing that I was fascinated by hearing a perspective on recently was 
we have this event called the Met Gala, and it is the closest that we have to seeing all of these wealthy, powerful celebrities go and dress up in extravagant outfits and gets all this media coverage. And the whole country is just, maybe not the whole country, but people that are interested in that are watching this and seeing how it's invite only and it's exclusive and what are they wearing? And we have that, we have the Oscars, we have all these similar events that are really just showcasing these powerful, wealthy celebrities and public figures and how that actually is similar. Historically, I think people were pointing out how it's kind of like the Gilded Age, which I also feel a bit ignorant on, but I was hearing comparisons to that and how we have this family in the US called the Kardashians. They have TV shows and this whole family of really successful daughters and a few men in the family too, but how they have established the fashion for the entire country. And imagine other countries as well are influenced by that, but their body shapes, their lips they're known for, the hinds they're known for, the hair they're known for, the way that they do their makeup, the clothing that they wear has created this extreme ripple effect to the point where when they change their appearance, everything falls out of fashion immediately. And it feels like everyone's trying to catch up. And it reminds me kind of what you were saying, Sarah, of, of how maybe women in the US and some other countries that observe this type of behavior feel like, if I can just look like these powerful women, then I feel like them. Maybe I too can achieve that level of power. And there's this myth of the self-made person that's so big in the United States of anybody can be anything and people at the top perpetuate it. Like, just follow my advice and you can do this too. And telling the story of someone who didn't have anything. And so if I didn't have anything and I can rise up to be this powerful and this attractive and this wealthy, anybody can. And so in the United States, there's this ethos of self-made and we're all equal. But more and more, it's been coming out people saying, actually, we're not all equal. And there's a huge wealth gap here in this country. And there's a lot of manipulation going on in the media to convince us of these things. And that actually keeps us down. Because if we keep believing and having hope that we too can achieve all of those things, it's really just the hope that keeps us going, but we're not actually getting anywhere. And a lot of the advice that's being shared cannot be applied to the average person and it completely takes away or does it disregards any of the inequality that it takes. So if we don't keep like the Kardashians, for example, one of them was crowned as a self-made billionaire and people were outraged by this. They're like, how can you call this woman self-made? She comes from an incredibly privileged family who is connected. Like you cannot disregard all of the things that she had that led to her achieving this huge thing, whereas the average person could never get there because they don't have those resources. They don't have that privilege. But that's part of the myth that we have in this country. And it sounds like that happens for you as well. I'm curious how much of the American influence comes across to England. Because given that the royal family does not really impact us much here in the States, aside from Meghan and Harry now, <laughs> do some of the things that I'm talking about reach your country as well? Or are they kind of kept separate in your culture? We definitely know about the Kardashians. Lots of people talk about them and follow them. I think maybe it is slightly buffered, like it's not quite as intense, partly because we have these established class structures Although there is the idea of meritocracy and the government talks about that currently they talk about something called leveling up, which is the idea is that we do want to be a country where people can rise through their efforts. But we also maybe have a slightly less intense idea of you have to just fight your way and you're going to make it. And the idea of these X factors much bigger in the States than it was here. I mean, it was big here, but it's not the same level of intensity, maybe because there's a a long history of people being born into a class and you know you're going to just stay in that class. There's no question of moving class. So 
you're either born a royal or you're born into the gentry or you're born into the middle class or you're born into the working the sort of peasant class. Um, the middle class is more m- mobile and that's where it dominates the country now. So there is more of a sense of that, but there's still this sort of underlying sense of permanence in your life that you don't necessarily move and you, why would you want to? Because I know my place, right? So there's the idea, I know my place. And that's actually soothing, I think, for people. I think people feel that it's safe because, well, I know I'm going to be poor all my life and that's useful to know because now I don't have to worry about it. (laughs) I don't have to try to change it. I can just accept it trust in those clever rich people to look after us and everything will be okay. So we have that kind of underlying narrative, I think, more so. So when we have celebrity culture coming in, it does impact and it does affect particularly probably younger people. But I don't think it's quite as full on and impactful as intense. I think that's very much a myth that you can make yourself. And I would question why would you want like, we don't want a country full of Kardashians, right? Why can't we be all sorts of different strange people. Why is that not okay? Like all that matters to me is that people have a reasonably dignified life. And like we were saying earlier about feeling safe, like I'm not going to be shot down in the street because of what I look like. But other than that, like, let's all just do our thing. I don't know that we need to all conform to this idea of success. What is that? And to me, that's a hunger, like a sense of inadequacy that comes from for me, being a celebrity is, and I remember reading this actually in biology, and like evolutionary anthropology, which is about why are humans the way they are through an evolutionary lens. In a small culture, which evolutionary sense, we'd be living in small, very closely related groups. And to be a celebrity in that culture just means that you've reached the age of, I don't know, 35 or 40 You've maybe achieved a few things, whether it was like in a battle or you built a house or you're a really good storyteller and the kids know who you are. And I get that in the town that people recognize you as you walk around town because it's a small town. The children like know the adults a lot. And so there's this little sense of celebrity on that scale, which is, oh, I'm recognized in my community for what I bring and I'm celebrated for it every now and then. People know who I am. And I think our culture may be in a much more uh, like big cities, places where people are constantly moving. You don't get that satisfaction. So then you start projecting it into this like, well, I better just be a Kardashian then because then people will see who I am and recognize and celebrate who I am and pay attention to me. Like we all need to have a basic need for attention and to be appreciated. And if we aren't able to build a culture around ourselves that does that, we then start projecting and creating these weird giant system things which then get exploited because some people can make lots of money. A very small number of people can either make it or, in the case of the royal families, it kind of insert themselves into a position that then is really immutable. And um, I think actually the systems in the States aren't that different. It's just that they're seen differently and there's different myths behind them. But the basic structure looks pretty similar to me, really. And I think someone like Trump is offering those impoverished, oppressed white people the idea that they can somehow be part of something really good (laughs) it's like a shortcut it's like oh i've got a magic thing that can make you feel better it's not going to address the real underlying issues we're traumatized fragmented not functioning that well we're not really caring for each other we're not really caring for each other so much of what you're saying is is really resonating even first of all i'm fascinated because This is exactly why it's so important to talk to people who are different than you, because Sarah, even the difference in our cultures and our countries, it almost doesn't make sense to me to just be okay with where you are, like what you're born into. That feels almost oppressive to me as an American, like because I've been raised with this idea that you can be anything you want to be and you're not stuck. And I don't know if that's an American thing or a white person thing or (laughs) I'm not sure. But for me, I was raised with so much hope and I moved from this small town in Massachusetts to Los Angeles in my entire childhood. I was like, I wanted to go to a big city. I was fascinated by New York for a while. I lived in San Francisco. I've always, since college, lived in big cities and been very drawn to them because they felt like the land of opportunity, like living in that small town as comforting as it was. And to your point, Sarah, absolutely. Everybody knew everybody in that town, but that felt too small for me. 
and come out to Los Angeles. I work in the entertainment industry and then pivoted into the content creation world. And for so long, being in this influencer marketing world, I feel exactly with what you're saying. It was very invigorating to feel like I was getting attention from people all around the globe and connected with people and feeling like I was moving my way up. But at the same time, it felt incredibly hollow. And over time, I started to feel like, wow, I don't want to live my whole life trying to rise above, trying to be at the top, trying to be better than other people. And I found myself wanting to, quote, come down and feel that equality and that inclusion because there's this idea that it's lonely at the top. But for me, it wasn't about loneliness. It was about feeling like I didn't want to exclude others. And that idea of privilege and this idea of getting things that other people couldn't get actually started to feel really unappealing. And I was buying into that mentality. I was finding myself saying things to people like, if I can do it, you can do it. And the truth is, it's actually not that easy. But to your point, Sarah, especially in the United States in this celebrity influencer culture, there is this idea that anybody can become famous. And I think it really appeals to people that want that. They want to feel special. They want to feel included. They want to feel privileged. But just the concept is that there can only be a few people at the top, which automatically means that there's a lack of equality. And now we're getting to this point of deep saturation, Sarah, which is really fascinating to see in this influencer world where it's becoming so concentrated. Like celebrity is going to mean something very different. Everybody's getting their 15 minutes of fame now because of the way that all of these pieces of technology have been created. Anybody can become a star overnight. The shortcuts, as you mentioned too, Sarah, very appealing. But that just means that something else is going to shift and again, create a lack of equality. So it's almost like, and maybe with your knowledge and research, Sarah, is it ever possible for us to be equal or will human beings always try to exclude and be special and be powerful and have control over one another? Because it seems like looking back over time, has there ever been a point in which human beings have not tried to dominate one another? I think that's such an interesting question. And I think it comes back to values and culture. You always have people who want to dominate. Like that's a natural urge, just as it's a natural urge sometimes to want to be violent. Like if I'm angry, I might want to hit somebody or something. And it's natural to love and it's natural to do collaboration and it's natural to want to come into community and share things. All of these things are possible. Everything is up for grabs. But we can be thoughtful about our culture and, and looking at difference. That's where we get, like you've just said, you get inspiration if you're open to difference. You get new ideas, new possibilities for being human. So the bigger we can expand our sense of who is part of we, like when I think of myself and my community, who is my community? The bigger we can, or the more interesting and complicated we can make that, the bigger my sense of myself, the bigger possibilities there are for me to be in the world. So it's actually very enriching to be inclusive. It makes us all wealthier in a different way than just the bank account. Having, particularly being royal, is very oppressive. Like your life is completely mapped out and you have to conform to it. And Meghan and Harry stepped outside of it and they are well and truly unwanted, like goodbye. And Prince Andrew, who is being charged with paedophile crimes, is being supported by his mother because he hasn't committed the sin of challenging the underlying values of the system, right? So we protect him because he's maintaining the system. No matter what crimes he commits, it's not about crimes. The crime is to challenge the values, <laughs> not to abuse people. That's okay. That's part of the system. So we make choices about what kind of culture we want. And people who come into a violent, abusive culture are likely to become violent, abusive people in order to survive. And that's all they know. That's the culture they're in. So how do we change those cultures? Absolutely, there are inclusive cultures. There's a group in London called the Radical Anthropology Group. And from them, I've been learning about a place in Africa where it's actually, I think it's in the Congo, and it's a place of matriarchy. And matriarchy doesn't mean patriarchy run by women, by the way. <laughs> it's 
the language is maybe problematic, but what that what that describes is a culture that's inclusive, that's much less hierarchical, much flatter. There is a little bit of hierarchy, but it, there's processes put in place to prevent dominance becoming out of control. And in a matriarchy, there's another definition, which is great, which is it's a society in which women have control of their own bodies. That's what a matriarchy is. And we don't live in that. We live in a society where we don't have control of our own bodies. And there's an example given of how that works. So basically, the women decide where they want to live. If the men want to follow them, they can, and they always do. (laughs) But they don't get to decide what's happening. And one of the mechanisms to keep that in place is, so there's this white English guy researcher, he's there working there for a few months, and he experienced this and it was really uncomfortable for him, but he'd seen it happen previously with other people. Basically, there's an older woman in the village and she starts mocking him and imitating him. Like he did something that was a bit off. He did something that kind of ruffled feathers or something like that, or something a little bit dumb. I can't remember what it was, but she started mocking him and imitating him. And so everyone starts laughing and she carries on. And then people are coming out of their houses and looking and joining in, laughing, laughing at him. And he's there in front of everyone. She's teasing him. And he feels mortified. He's really embarrassed. Like, what the hell is this? This whole village of people laughing at me. You know, it's awful. And it just carries on and carries on. And eventually he suddenly just cracks and he starts laughing. He sees the joke, like he relaxes and he lets it go. Like his pride is like, oh, okay, let go. And at that moment, everybody just stops laughing, carries on with their business, goes back to the house. The whole thing's over. And it's actually a mechanism for preventing dominance because he started to do something a little bit off and then they just mock him until he laughs. And then he's let that go. He's not going to try and like assert himself in that way anymore. So I thought that was really interesting. That's an example of a living culture where dominance doesn't take over. It just can't <laughs> because of things like that, practices like that. And so the elder women are actually the leaders, really. They're kind of but not in a way of like, I don't like what you did. You're going to be punished, blah, blah, blah. It's just, oh, what's this idiot doing, you know? And it was like, there's a way to handle it. So I think there is a lot of rich possibilities out there for what, and looking to American indigenous culture, there's a lot of um, amazing understanding of practices of keeping in circles, inclusive approaches to each other, but also to nature and understanding how to be in good relationship with the environment. Again, in the rainforest as well, the people there ask permission from the rainforest to live in a place. They seek permission. They often go to the shaman who has the greatest sensitivity and maybe is the most ADHD type, like neurodiverse person. I don't know, but like superpowers of understanding and communicating with the nature spirits. And in that way, they negotiate continually with each other and with the forest in order to live. And nobody can get control in any really significant way. So it's something about ongoing negotiation and constant kind of movement of the hierarchies. How do we create that kind of process that brings the culture back into equity over and over again? Because it's always going to be trying not to be. And so we need cultures that allow it to keep cycling back around. Again, that's my perspective, my how I see it. I love the way that you see and share these things, Sarah. And I would love to end by hearing more about the work that you're doing and for those that are interested in learning more about that and keeping in touch with you. Tell us, what is it that you're passionate about right now and where do you spend the most time online connecting with other people? Thanks, Whitney. So yeah, I'm on Instagram. The handle is arachnez, which is A-R-A-C-H-N-E-Z. And I'm making 100 goddess paintings. So here's one of them. This is St. Bridget, the spirit of spring, early spring. And um, the idea with that is like just to chuck some goddess culture out into the world and say, look, you know, there's this diversity, 100 different faces of the goddess, create a possibility for like a, a sense of feminine power. The domination doesn't just have to be a male thing, that women can be embodied in these different powerful modes. So there's 100 of those being made. And I've also got a website being built. So hopefully by the time this goes out, it's up. It's sarahdixon.studio. And that's where I've got my art practice, my coaching practice. So you can see the goddesses. And I also offering now ancestral healing through heirloom coaching. So this is working with objects you've inherited to transform the culture. So you can use an object, enter into a dialogue with something that's come from your family, 
or your culture, actually. I mean, this can apply to like public statues and things, but it's the objects that have been handed down. How do we address them? Do we want to change them, melt them? Do we want to honor them more greatly and put them on a pedestal? Like, what do we want to do? Repaint them? Like, we can take objects and use them as a way to enter into this dialogue of what kind of legacy do we want to create? What change do we want to make from what we've inherited to what's next? So those are the things I'm up to. Find me on Instagram, Arachnes or Sarah Dixon Studio and the website as well. And I'd love to hear a chat with anyone, especially if you want to talk about ancestral healing with um, objects, because that's my big focus now. That is so cool. I love that. And I will link to all of that in the show notes for this episode. So for the listener, make it really easy for you. There's a full transcript. There's a video so you can see some of Sarah's artwork visually there. If you go to wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, you'll find Sarah's link so you can easily get in touch with her, the video, the transcript, the quotes that you could read back through if you like to take in information beyond audio. There's all different methods to do that on that website as well as connecting with Sarah. I think that is absolutely brilliant. And I admired that painting behind you. I'm so glad that you told the story behind it. But the objects, wow, that's fascinating. I imagine that going into antique stores must be really stimulating for you, Sarah, just to go in and see all these old objects and wondering about their history. And are you able to feel something or sense something from these objects? Or is it through the stories that people share when they're in a session with you, Sarah? How does that work unfold? I'd say it's a bit of both, actually. Obviously, the person is really important because that's the living, powerful being that is in the room that's going to change something, right? The object can't change on its own. But I do listen to the object and speak to it. And I worked on my own piece. So that was with silver heirlooms and the idea I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. This was actually linked to the work I was doing with the women with the witch hunts and looking at ancestry and healing. How do we like deal with these legacies? And so I listened to this little trophy, silver trophy, and also a milk jug, the trophy from my father's side and milk jug from my mother's. And it's like an intuitive kind of dreaming process. And the objects will speak to you if you listen, they want to talk to you. So I've cut them and melted them and turned them into new objects, a set of ritual objects that are about, it's creating a set of heirlooms for my daughter that allow her to enact rituals which would be inclusive and nature connected and healing rituals, symbolic objects, a needle, a medicine spoon, a little bowl, a singing bowl so that we can listen to the sound, just turning them into something new. So I didn't completely destroy them, but (laughs) I did ask permission and we did a ritual to allow them to finish what the phase that they'd been in and let the silver become something else. So that's a little insight into how I work with objects and with other people. So yeah, what comes through is family stories and their position in the family. And then the object becomes a place of transformation for the person as well as the object itself. That is deeply intriguing. I don't think I've ever heard of that before, Sarah. And it got me thinking about various things that I own and even just kind of the unfolding of finding information because so many of us think at the surface level, we take things at face value, but oftentimes digging into the details. You know, one thing I thought of was this necklace I have from my grandmother. It was after she and my grandfather had passed away, I found this necklace in her drawer. And my family said I could have it. And I often wish that I could have asked her, what's the story behind this necklace? Was it something that had meaning to her? Was it just a cheap piece of jewelry that she had as like, did she get it for a dollar somewhere? You know, I don't know the story behind it. And I'm sure though that could unfold in a conversation with you or maybe even inspire me to talk to other people and kind of go down this path of why did I feel drawn to this piece of jewelry and what is the meaning it has for me versus the meaning it had for my grandmother? Was it new when she got, I mean, it's just kind of fascinating to go into all of that. And I'm also very drawn to objects as well. I always have been. And for those that like to collect things or things that mean something to you, just looking at them visually, I can feel that energy. You know, my new object is this stone I got on my trip. It's a piece of blue calcite. And I remember I walked around the shop and I found myself just like, 
wanting to see what item I felt connected to. And I said, I'm not going to buy anything unless I feel connected to something. And that in itself can be such an amazing practice. And then when you feel connected to it, the whole other layer is the history behind it and the meaning behind it for other people that had it before you. So Sarah, I think that is so fantastic. I love that you do that work. And I love that it ties into so much of your passion for human beings and healing and working through all these traumas that we've unfortunately passed down to each other and examining how can we step outside of the way that we're currently operating to work on ourselves. So then maybe we can contribute to reducing trauma in our lifetimes. So thank you for everything that you've shared. I feel like I learned so much and I feel so impressed with your history as a human being. So thank you for telling that story today and sharing the wisdom that you've acquired along the way. It's an absolute pleasure, Whitney. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I absolutely love these kind of chats. So yeah, it's really, (laughs) really nice to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for making the space. You're absolutely welcome. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.